The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. Uh, This morning, we're starting a new study. We're going to do a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. But for our study this morning, we're going to go back and look at Acts 17 because this is where the church comes from. In Acts 17, Paul goes into the area, preaches the gospel, and the church is born. So we're going to look at that this morning. It was on his second missionary journey, Paul, when he was together with Silas and Timothy and Luke, they established a beachhead for the gospel in Europe in the city of Philippi in Macedonia, and that was around 51 A.D., While in Philippi, Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten following Paul's casting out of a demon from a demon girl. Remember, she was following him around and making prophecies. And when he cast his demon out, their owners lost a lot of money because she was a fortune teller. So they had them arrested. They were beaten. They were put in a dungeon and in the inner prison. And they were in there singing praise. And as they're praising God at midnight, Earthquake destroyed the prison. The jailer and his family came to faith as a result, and they joined together with Lydia and her household to form the first church on the European continent. Luke would remain on to shepherd that young church, while Paul and his companions head south on the Ignatian Way as soon as they're released from prison. And we see this in Acts 17.1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, the they here is because Luke has been saying we, but now he says they, because he stayed on in Philippi. They went, they continued to go on, and so he changes now and he says when they had passed through, because he wasn't with them. Uh, He remained in Philippi. Now, As they leave Philippi, it appears from the text that they just passed through Amphipolis, which is here, about 33 miles down the coastline. And then they seem to just pass through Apollonia, which is here, about another 60-some miles away. And then they come to Thessalonica, which is about 100 miles away from Philippi. So they've been in Philippi, now they leave, and three days later they're down here in Thessalonica. Just to give you some perspective, Jerusalem is over here, and Thessalonica is up here. So this is where Paul is traveling on his second missionary journey. Now, the text doesn't say that Paul and his missionary team stayed only overnight in Amphipolis or Apollonia, but most interpreters have inferred this from the narrative. It would seem that the reason they they didn't stop at either of these places for any length of time was because when they got there, they discovered there's no synagogue there. While there were synagogues in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, as we'll see. Um, So Paul and Silas had just been severely beaten in Philippi. I doubt they could have walked 100 miles in three days. Think about that. That's quite a walk. And with sandals, not, you know, I'm Nike sneakers or anything like that on, okay? You're wearing sandals. A hundred miles, that's quite a walk, especially after receiving a brutal beating. That would have been a pretty painful walk. 
Now, even if these guys were in great shape, this journey on foot would have taken much longer than three days, which makes me think that they probably travel on horseback. I mean, the scripture doesn't say that, but they had to get there. I know they didn't take a, a Honda, even though they were in one accord. <laughs> I better leave Joel Olsting to the jokes, okay? <laughs> All right, let's talk about Thessalonica for a minute. The city was founded in 315 B.C. It was named in honor of Philip II's daughter, Thessalonicus. It was a trading city of 200,000 people at least. So this is a pretty decent-sized city. It was the capital of Macedonia. Three great rivers came through it and converged into the sea. So it was a very important port. Also, the Ignatian Highway ran through the middle of Thessalonica, So everyone traveling east or west came through here. It was populated by Greeks, Roman citizens, Jews, and Orientals. In verse 4, he says there was a great many devout Greeks. So this tells us that the Jewish religious influence was having an effect among the population. Because Paul found many, he says, devout Greeks among the citizens. Now, What do you think the first thing Paul did when he reached Thessalonica was? (laughs) Well, I think if if it was on a Friday, (laughs) if he arrived on a Friday, I think the first thing he did was go to the synagogue. But if he didn't arrive on a Friday, I think the first thing he did was get a job tent making. He went into the city And he set up some kind of work. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of Christ. So they're there to teach the gospel. So they're saying, we don't want to, you know, get in there and first thing we do, take an offering. That's not going to look very good. So he went to work. And 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 8, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul makes it clear in this letter that he was very careful that he wouldn't be a financial burden to them, that that wouldn't be a negative thing that they said, oh, this guy just wants money from us. At that time, there were a lot of traveling philosophers, and they had a reputation for you know just milking the crowd for all they could get out of it. And Paul didn't want to be included among that group. So he made tents all week, but on Saturday, he'd go to the synagogue and teach the Scriptures. He also, while he was there, received two financial gifts from the Philippians, while he was there, we see that in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, he says, And as you Philippians yourself know, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So they sent him two different offerings while he was there just to help him out. Now, notice verse 15. It says, They entered into a partnership. This is the Greek word koinoneo, and it means to share with others, to communicate, to distribute, to be a partner. So, what Paul is saying is 
through your financial gift, you're literally entering a partnership with me in the gospel. He's thanking them for their gifts. Basically, that's what this whole letter, Philippians, is about. It's a thank you letter for them helping him out. Now, so verse 1 says there's a synagogue of the Jews, and then verse 2 says, and Paul went in. Paul always started his ministry in the synagogue. This was his practice wherever he went. We see him do this in Damascus, in Jerusalem, Antioch, Lystra, Philippi. Why do you do this? Yeah, it was because that's where you could find somebody who already had some knowledge of Scriptures. All right, you go there. Okay, they're there to study the Scriptures. He wants to teach them the Scriptures. This is where they could find also those people who are looking for the Messiah. Now, let's talk for just a minute about the synagogue because there's a little confusion about this. The synagogue is not the temple. You understand that, right? The synagogue is a completely different place. During the 400 silent years which we call them, from the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the gospel, is when this whole concept of the rabbis and the synagogue arose. The Hebrew people at that time period, they had a passion for the Hebrew Scriptures. And they wanted to learn what God had to say. So they needed a place where the Scriptures could be read and taught. So they developed a synagogue. The synagogue system offered the unique opportunity of making the Hebrew Scriptures available everywhere the Jews had been dispersed throughout the entire world. There were three things the Jews did in the synagogues, and the Gentile people joined in and had benefit from all of them. They'd read the Bible, they would pray, and they would try to make application to their lives of what they were reading and praying about. There was a synagogue located in every city in which there was ten Jewish males. So we could not have a synagogue here, people. Okay, we don't have enough men. All right. We just couldn't do it. No less than seven men would be called upon to read portions of the law and prophets when they met. And the ruler of the synagogue could and would call on any competent, distinguished visitor to speak. So Yeshua and the apostles took advantage of this practice and they would go there and they would get opportunity to stand up in the synagogue and teach and read scriptures and share about Christ. Now, How long were Paul and the missionary team in Thessalonica? We really don't know. I mean, the text says they were three Sabbath days. But that doesn't mean they were just there three weeks. I think they had to be there longer than three weeks because we read things like this in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we urge you in the Lord, Yeshua, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So that seems like it's going to take a lot longer time than three weeks to get in there and teach them how to live, what they're supposed to do. Three could indicate a complete ministry. Three is a number of completion. It could be that. Um, The common use of two would mean a few, and three often meant a good many. So it's not just saying he was there just exactly three weeks. Our text says that Paul reasoned with them from the Scripture. Now the word reason here is from the Greek word dialegomai, and it's a word from which we get words like dialogue or dialectic. It's a word that originally referred to the Socratic method of communication in which there was a responsiveness on the part of the individuals. 
Questions would be thrown out like Plato and Socrates did. And then the answers were given. And other questions, they'd go back and forth in that kind of a format just to try to teach the things they were doing. Paul didn't just get up there and give a lecture. There was communication. They were going back and forth, asking questions, giving them the answers. Now, he allowed for questions and dialogue. The imperfect tense here indicates a renewed kind of repeated questioning. In other words, there's an interchange here. Now, the text goes on to tell us that Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Yeshua, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, explaining here means to open. Luke uses the same word um, of God opening the eyes of the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 31. They were explaining the Hebrew prophecies, and they were proving. And this literally means to place before or alongside. What they were doing was they were taking what they knew about the Messianic promises, and they were putting them alongside the events of the life and ministry of Yeshua and showing how He is fulfilling these prophecies. Now, what we have here in verse 3 is a rhetorical syllogism. We've talked about syllogisms in the past. They're a logical argument, so people don't use them anymore. (laughs) But it's a logical formula consisting of a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. I mean, have you ever heard anybody using syllogisms today? I mean, again, we don't use much logic today, so there wouldn't be much point in them. But the major premise would be something like this. Only God can forgive sins. Everybody agree with the major premise? Okay. Minor premise. Yeshua forgave men's sins. We we agree there? I mean, Yeshua forgave men's sins. So what's the conclusion? Yeshua is God. That's a logical formula. Helps us to understand things. They use this often in reasoning with people. All right, let's go back to our text. The text says that Christ was to suffer and rise from the dead. So the major premise that's laid out here is the characteristics of the Christ, the Messiah, are that He must suffer and rise from the dead. What was the biggest hang-up the Jews had about Yeshua being the Messiah? It was the fact that He had died. See, that that didn't fit in their plan at all. They couldn't conceive of a dead Messiah. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. They didn't want to hear about a Messiah who went to a cross and died. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, And folly to the Gentiles. Again, the thought of a suffering Messiah was a concept that the Jews just were not familiar with. They were expecting a victorious Messiah by conventional means. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah was that He would bring deliverance through conquest. This title Messiah carried overtones of a political power, especially in one strand of the Jewish hope presented by the Psalms of Solomon which gave one of the clearest expressions of the Jews' continuing hope. Now, the Songs of Solomon is a pseudepigrapher work. It's part of the intertestamental literature. 
It was written about 70 to 40 B.C. And the Psalms of Solomon was a Jewish writing of the Messiah as the son of David. Their Messiah, they said, was a warrior prince who would expel the hated Romans from Israel and bring in a kingdom in which the Jews would be promoted to world dominion. So that sounds good like a good Messiah for them. That's what they wanted. We want freedom from Rome. We want to cast off these bonds and we want to be free. And so to them, their Messiah was a warrior prince. Now, Yeshua taught his disciples that he had to suffer and die. And even after spending three years with them, they still didn't get it. Okay? Look at Luke 18, 31. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now by that, he's talking about the suffering, the death. That's what the prophets said. Paul is preaching the same thing that Yeshua taught. The Scriptures taught the Messiah would suffer and die. In verse 32 and 33, he says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise. Now, so Yeshua's talking to his disciples, he's saying this, and here is where you expect the disciples to say, yeah, 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 we know that, Lord. We understand that, we know the Scriptures, we know exactly what's going to happen. But instead, notice what they say, but they understood none of these things. Three, come on, three years, you guys don't get a clue here? This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So the disciples had no idea what Yeshua was talking about. Even though they knew the Scriptures, and they knew them quite well, they didn't understand them. And that's the significance. That's a difference there, people. You can understand the Scriptures. You can memorize the Scriptures and not have a clue what they're saying. I mean, you've got, you got to understand, these Jews were certainly familiar with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right? They had to know that. Let's look at that. I just want to read that whole passage to you because we see so clearly what it seems like the Jews couldn't grasp. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, that doesn't sound like a victorious Messiah. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So this whole thing is just talking about the the death and, and suffering that the Messiah would go through. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like sheep before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So again, talking about cutting off from the land of the living, made his grave with the wicked. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. He pours his soul out. Again, talking about death here. That he might bear the sin of many. So, listen. They knew, or should have understood, the suffering servant, he was going to die. This is Messiah. They also knew the smitten shepherd of Zechariah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little one. So they understood these references. And there's other references like Psalm 22, Psalm 18, 10. They knew that the Son of Man in Daniel, as a representative of God's people, came out of suffering into the presence of God. So suffering and death of Messiah were a must. This was a divine necessity. It was spoken throughout the law and the prophets. So was His resurrection. We see in Hosea 6, 1 and 2. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. The book of Psalms underscores this point that Messiah would rise from the dead. We see it in Psalm 16, Psalm 30. So the major premise is established. Okay, The characteristics of the Christ are that He must suffer and rise from the dead. That's what the Scriptures taught. They should have known that. Now the minor premise is Yeshua modeled these characteristics in His death and resurrection. It was well known that Christ had suffered. And Paul made it abundantly clear, proving that He had risen again from the dead. So the conclusion here is what? The characteristics of of the Messiah are that He would suffer and rise from the dead. Yeshua modeled these characteristics in His death and resurrection. So what's the conclusion? Yeshua is the Christ. And that's what Paul's there proving. Listen, look at all the prophecies. Then look at the life of Christ. He fulfilled them. He is the Messiah. Even though they had this view, some of them, of this warrior prince, they're saying, no, this is what the Scriptures say. The most convincing arguments for the truth of who Yeshua is is the absolute and total fulfillment of prophecy. Over a thousand prophecies were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. So they had the Scriptures. Now, Let me ask you something. Do you think you could take the Tanakh 
and show a person that Christ had to suffer and die and rise from the dead and demonstrate that He's the Christ? That's what He's doing. He's using the Jewish Scriptures. And He's showing them these things. Referring to this Yeshua, Peter declared some 20 years earlier in the presence of the Jewish Supreme Court in Jerusalem, he said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As he preached in the synagogue at Thessalonica, Paul would declare to the Jews, Listen, there's no salvation in Judaism. There was salvation possible it wasn't made possible by Roman philosophy. They, a lot of them trusted in that, nor in the 2,000 mystery religions that were so prevalent in their day. Salvation was to be found only in Yeshua, the Messiah of God, whom the Jews had rejected. In Acts 17.4, he says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So he says, and some of them. Who's the them here? Well, this is referring to the Jews. If you go back to verse 1, some of the Jews, Paul is you know, demonstrating the truth of Yeshua. Some of the Jews believe it. They believe, well, I guess Yeshua really was the Christ. They believe Paul's word and they put their faith in Yeshua. But not only Jews believe the message, but he said a great many of the devout Greeks. Now, devout here points to the class of monotheistic Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel as the one true God. They respected the Old Covenant and the moral teachings of the Jews. These devout Greeks would attend synagogue. They'd observe the Sabbath. And so preaching in the synagogue was an effective means of reaching these Gentiles. In nearly every synagogue, there were devout or God-fearing Gentiles. And these Gentiles had already come to the point of looking for salvation from a Jewish Messiah And so they had some kind of knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then it says, and not a few of the leading women. So he covers Jews, he covers Gentiles, then he says, oh yeah, let me talk about the women. Well, weren't there women Jews and women Gentiles? But he puts them in a separate category, because women in the ancient culture were little better than slaves. I mean, that's they didn't care what the women had to say. Women really didn't study the Scriptures. They were kind of left out. But in Macedonia... And in parts of Asia Minor, prominent women had the freedom not known in most places elsewhere. They would be wives of important officials and residents and wealthy widows of status. And they were held in high esteem and they were given great respect and positions in the social, civil, and religious affairs of the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica. And as they listened to Paul and Silas explain the Hebrew prophecies concerning Yeshua the Messiah... The hearts of these women were open to the Lord, and they also trusted Christ. Okay, so we have Jews, that's the them, we have a great many devout Greeks, and then we have not a few leading women. Why did these Jews, devout Greeks and women, turn to Christ? You think it was Paul's persuasive manner of speech? He won him over by the way he was speaking? Or maybe it's because they were smarter than other people. And just realize, yeah, this stuff is true. We better jump on board. No. They believed because they had been chosen by God. Now, I know you Arminians out there don't like it. I don't care. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what the Scriptures say. Look what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. 
why are you thanking God for them? Why don't you thank them for them? Or they're thanking God because God's the one who did it. Beloved of the Lord, because, here's why they're thanking, God chose you to be first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, there's a textual variant here. Some of the early manuscripts read from the beginning and others read first fruits. For example, if you look at Young's literal translations, it says that God did choose you from the beginning to salvation. Now, if from the beginning is the original reading, and I kind of lean that way, I think it parallels very well with Ephesians 1.4 where Paul says this, even as He chose us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So Paul's agreeing there in Ephesians with what he says in Thessalonica that you know they are chosen from the beginning. Now, so ESV says first fruits, Young says beginning, many translations have beginning. If first fruits is the original, then Paul was saying that the Thessalonians were some of the first converts to the gospel in their region in the Gentile world. But either way, Paul's point is that God chose the Thessalonians for salvation. God didn't look down through history and see that the Thessalonians were going to choose to believe in Him, so therefore He chose them. He put them on a list. No, the Scriptures, people, are uniformly clear that our salvation is rooted in God's sovereign choice of us before the foundation of the world. Some people say it's a good thing God chose us before the world was created because He probably wouldn't have chose us once He knew us. Well, God knows everything and He chose us. And we believe because God has chosen us. Now, I know most of the church has that backwards. They think, well, you believe the gospel, then God will give you a new life. You can't believe because you're dead, but God gives you new life and then you can believe the gospel. Over and over in the book of Acts, Luke's make, Luke makes it really clear that salvation is of the Lord. Let's go back one chapter to Philippians. In Acts 16, 13 and 14 says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where it was supposed to be a place of prayer. Now, they didn't have a synagogue. There wasn't enough people. People would go down to the water and that's where they'd worship. So they went down there. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. No synagogue, so the women are gathering here at the water. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from a city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, who was a worshiper of God. And then he says this, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that uses the phrase, opened her heart. And the Bible gives the whole credit for this opening to God's power and not to man's will. Arminianism insists that man's free will must furnish the willingness or the power, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God furnishes that power or ability of the new birth. Now look at the words, what he says here. He said, the Lord opened her heart. If you try to deny that the one single reason that Lydia understood and believed the gospel was because God deliberately opened her heart and enabled her to believe, you are fighting against the clear Word of God. If you try to get man's free will as the one determining factor into this text, 
you're corrupting the word of God. It's not there. God opened her heart. That's why she could pay attention to what was said. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. God has to do something to people. And when it comes to grasping divine truth, not even on an academic level is it adequate for people to absorb it. You know, a person can have an advanced degree in study of the Bible or theology and still not know or understand the redemption through Christ. There's plenty of, you know, teachers in colleges and seminaries that are teaching Bible. They don't know God. They know the Scriptures. They know what they say. They try to teach Him. But God's truth requires divine work for sinful man to grasp. Let's back up a couple chapters to chapter 13. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, when they heard what? Paul's preaching the gospel to them. When they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, who's the text they believe? It was the ones that God had appointed to eternal life. That's what the text says. Now, he could have just said here, and many believe. He does that many times in the book. But he's careful here to tell us that those ones and only those who are appointed to eternal life believe. And Luke uses predestination terminology to point this out. As elsewhere, that this faith is, above all, God's work. People's salvation is of the Lord. The Scriptures just say that over and over and over. All right, let's go back to Thessalonians. So we have first fruits, we have beginning. Now, the word beginning here, if this is the actual text, and like I said, I think beginning is, has some stronger evidence. This is the Greek word arche, which is the same word used in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, same word, arche, was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So the beginning that you were chosen from is as long as God existed, which is forever, He had chosen us to be His children. He chose us in eternity past. And let me give you some good news. He will never change His mind. Okay? He never unchoose you. He never say, that was a bad choice. I'm getting rid of that one. No. And this is security, alright? He chose us in eternity past to be His children forever. That's security. That's something to rejoice in, people. Our salvation is secure, and it's based on God and what God has done. You can't lose by works what you never earned in the first place, all right? Salvation is through Christ alone. In verse 5 of Acts 17, he says, But the Jews were jealous. Okay, so people are turning to Christ, and the Jews don't like this, especially because Gentiles are turning to Christ. Okay, Jews, they don't like that. Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, no, we can't have Gentiles in on this thing. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It seems every time Paul finished his teaching in the synagogue, the very next verse opens with, but the Jews. All right, we see this over and over in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So, but... When the Jews saw the crowds, again, here's jealousy. 
This happened in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. On the first missionary journey, and here again, you suppose on the second missionary journey. These, these Jews are envious. They don't want these Gentiles coming in on this. These Jews, just like Jonah of old, Jonah didn't want Ninevites getting coming to Christ. He said, God, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were... Fa- I mean, what? he's complaining about this. This is why I didn't want to come here, God. I knew you would save these people. He didn't want these people saved. Just like the people of Nazareth in Luke 4. Just like the Jews in Jerusalem later on in Acts 22. They're greatly angered that a salvation of the Jews is being offered to Gentiles. And that many were placing their trust in Him, following Paul and the others. Now, you would think that when Paul, he would avoid the Jews in the synagogue, especially since he has to be still hurting from the last beating he just got in Philippi. But not Paul. He's a courageous man. He doesn't care. He goes right in there and just starts preaching. And it says they take some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. This is not the best translation. Adam Clark, uh, commenting on this, says this. He says, those who transact business in courts of justice. The same word is used by the Jews in Hebrew letters to signify judges of the Gentiles. These were probably a low kind of lawyers, what we would call pedophagers. We wouldn't call them that, but back in the day, okay, they would call them that. Or attorneys without principle, that's what a pedophagger is, who gave advice for a trifle and fomented disputes and litigations among the people. So he says, these people are just professionals stirring up trouble. This mob assaulted the house of Jason because they thought the apostles were probably staying there and they sought to bring them out to the people. It says, and when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king Yeshua. Now, the Greek word that is translated here as authorities is polartarches, which means a town officer, a magistrate, a ruler of the city. Polartarches was unknown outside of Macedonia. I mean, this is kind of a word they used there, and it wasn't used other places. And since the term was unknown elsewhere, critics of Luke they dismiss this as a mark of ignorance. They say, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. See, he uses a word that is not even out there. But now, 16 epigraphical examples exist in modern Salonika, and one of them is located in the British Museum on a stone that once formed part of an archway that has this term on it. So it was evidently the Macedonian term, Luke is a very accurate historian, and when people start attacking the Bible, you know, thinking they know more, just give it time and, you know, they'll be revealed that they were wrong. And especially in the day and age we live, they've discovered so many things, you know, through Qumran and all the tablets that were found there that, you know, we, we've learned quite a bit more. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down. Now, they've only been to one town, Philippi in Europe. And already, though, through the events of just a few days in that one town, these men are convinced that they're turning the world upside down. And the rumor has drifted all the way down to Thessalonica, over 100 miles away. These guys are just turning the world upside down. 
that is a that is an awesome thing to be said of a Christian. Okay? These guys, in other words, they're having an effect on their culture. They're turning the world upside down. That's something we should still be doing today. Because without Christ, the world is an absolute mess. I mean, in our country, they made it legal to kill babies in the womb right up to the moment of birth. But if you kill a dog, or even fight dogs, you're going to jail. So killing babies, that's okay. Killing a dog, and I'm not for killing dogs, but there's, okay, there's a difference between human and animals. I hope you understand that, okay? You can't even fight a dog or you go to jail. This, this, world we're living in is so sick and it seems to be on a downward spiral right now here in this country. It's just so complacent in its brazen sin and rebellion against God. It needs to be upset. And the only way we're going to upset this world is through the gospel. You know, most Christians today have absolutely no effect on the world in which they live. They just exist in it. And they seem like just like everybody else that's in that world, so we're not really making a mark. But here were two people that it's said in the Scriptures they turned the world upside down. They had an impact. Now, the Gospel is still as powerful today as it was back then. Would you agree with that? We just need to be more aggressive in sharing it, I think. And notice that when they got Jason before the magistrates, they didn't say... These people are preaching that the Messiah must suffer and that He must rise from the dead and that Yeshua is the Messiah. That's what they were preaching. But they didn't say that, okay? What they said was, these fellows are doing things that are contrary to the decree of Caesar. You see what they just did? They're making it political. They're making it political. That's what they're doing. So the Jews in Thessalonica began to persecute the missionaries But they did it in such a way that the local authorities would see it as political rather than religious. So yeah, okay, that's what they're doing is bad. The Jews in this instance were doing what the Jews had done before Pilate in John 19.15 where they said, we have no king but Caesar. They're renouncing their hope for a messianic king. To the Jews, they're saying Claudius is king. Declaring that there was another king and that would be treason. And that's what they're being charged with. They're being charged with literally denying the theocratic nation. And in denying themselves, they denied the Hebrew Scriptures. They denied the doctrine. They lost their position of God as a nation because they said, oh, these people, they're going against Caesar. That's their problem. Well, not finding Paul and Silas, they turned on Jason and some fellow believers, and they hauled them before the city rulers and said the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So I think we're aware of the fact that Paul created riots everywhere he went when he preached. I mean, Jason and the other new Christians, they're dragged to the court by the mob and they're placed under a lot of pressure. The accusation was that Jason had entertained those who violated Roman law by claiming there's another king besides Caesar, and that king is Yeshua. A judgment was made, and then a bond was paid by Jason, 
presumably as a bond against any further trouble, and then to let them go, possibly suggesting, even specifically requiring, that it was a good idea that Paul and Silas get out of town. And we see that in the next verse. and says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Here we go again, okay? We're starting all over in a new town. You know, Paul was a slow learner. He didn't mind being beaten. You know, he just keeps doing the same thing. So what happened once Paul and Silas and Timothy left town? Did the church live in peace and material prosperity for the rest of their days? Do we know what happened to the church after Paul left? Yeah, we do. This wasn't the end of the problems for Jason and the fellow believers, and that's why we have the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul writes back to them. He says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your countrymen. So they are suffering here in Thessalonica. And this is an important part of this study of Thessalonians, that these Christians here are really being persecuted, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. So those in Thessalonica, they're suffering for their faith. But Paul taught them before he was forced to leave town that as believers, that's life, okay? If you're going to be a godly Christian, now if you're going to be a keep my mouth shut Christian and don't say anything, go along Christian, you're not going to be persecuted. They're not going to know you're different. But if you're someone who is a godly Christian and stands out against people, you're going to suffer persecution for it. They're going to come against you. It's going to make life more difficult for you. And they were suffering. But Paul said they're destined for that. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, he says, And no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it came to pass and just as you know. All right, they were to suffer affliction. They're destined for that. And again, people, it's when we live godly in Christ Jesus, when we open our mouths and we preach the gospel and we tell people what is righteous living, what is justice and what is honest, we're running up against a system that hates all those things. And they were suffering, but they were being like their teacher Paul and they continued to press on in the midst of that suffering. They continued to spread the word in the midst of their suffering. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8 it says, For not only has the word of Yahweh sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith of God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. They're making an impact, and it's being spread around. They're talking about it. You know, in many countries throughout the world, men and women who have dedicated their lives in the service of Christ are suffering persecution today. We hear about that every Sunday in the persecuted church, places around the world. And why? Because they're standing out. They're not allowed to meet, and they don't care they meet anyway. They're not allowed to preach Christ, they preach it anyway. They don't care what the government says, they don't care what the world says, because they're doing what God has called them to do. And when they proclaim the gospel, they're suffering for it. And by contrast, those of us who live in the United States, we're free to talk about Christ all we want, and gather together, and yet we don't really share what we believe. 
I think American culture is a hard place for the gospel because we're so focused on prosperity and we have everything. There's not persecution here. And so, well, there hasn't been. During this COVID thing, they've come against the churches trying to shut them down and many pastors foolishly shut down. Okay? We have a mandate from God. We don't need the government to tell us it's okay to meet or not meet. But yet, in America, we're not very aggressive in our faith. People, just try standing up and see what a difference it will make in your life as far as gaining persecution or, you know, I mean, today, you know, they try to tell us that men and women are not different. And even if you say they are different, then it's like, whoa, you're a bigot. What's wrong? Wait a minute. There's a difference. Okay. There's a man and there's a woman. And I don't care what you do. I don't care what surgeries you have. You're still a man. You're still a woman. You know, today, women's sports are being dominated by males who say they're women. It's the craziest thing. Our culture is just so upside down. But if you speak out against that stuff, you're going to receive persecution. You speak out against homosexuality. You speak out against anything. When I was in the military, when I was aboard ship, they, I was with a helicopter squadron. We had one hangar for the helicopter. That's where all the people you know, who were stationed with that helicopter hung out. And they would take... In, in the room there, and they put up pornography all over the walls. And so I would go in there when I got up in the morning, and I'd pull it all down, and I'd throw it over the side of the ship into the water. And, you know, that didn't make me a lot of friends, but I just, I told them, I'm not posting Bible verses all over the wall. You're not posting this crap all over the wall. And so we had it out. But I had the UCMJ on my side, so there really wasn't anything they could do other than try to make my life miserable. But it really didn't, because the Bible says when a man weighs... When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so, people, we just need to learn to stand up for what's true. Not in an arrogant, you know, condescending manner. We just need to tell people what the truth is. You know, we need to say that abortion is murder. That's a human being. Our voices need to be heard. Because where else, who, who else is going to tell people this stuff? Where else are they going to hear it? Well, this is how the church in Thessalonica was founded. Paul went into the city, preached the gospel, proved from the scriptures that Yeshua was the Christ, and people put their faith in him. Next week, we're going to be in the look at the letter that Paul wrote to this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. I thank you, Father, for the men and women of God who have stood up and made a difference in the culture they lived in. Father, give us a holy boldness. Help us to realize, Lord, we have to stand for what we believe in. That people will know we're different and know there is a God who rules from heaven. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.